We're here today with Janine North, CEO, Northern Development Initiative Trust, for another in our series of Are We There Yet? Women, Position, and Power. Thank you so much, Janine, for agreeing to be part of our interview series. I'm anxiously awaiting your responses to the questions, and I know our readers and listeners will be really interested in hearing your story and sharing your, hearing your perspective on some of these issues. So thanks so much for agreeing to meet with us today. It's great to be here with you, Erica. Okay, thank you. So we wanted to start off by just asking you to tell us a little bit about your current position and your journey. How did you get where you are? I'm the CEO of the Northern Development Initiative Trust, which is a regional economic trust um, that has a mandate about um, building a stronger north, a stronger northern economy. And I work with 49 communities, regional districts, and uh, 88 First Nations, and about 75% of the province. We manage a trust that's over $200 million, and it's fully geared towards offering the sorts of granting and loan and loan guarantee programs that help business grow, that uh, will help communities uh, allow for a higher quality of life and prosperity for its citizens, and to take advantage of this uh, wonderful opportunity in front of the North with $70 billion of projects that are either in process or being planned for the next decade in northern BC. Okay. And how did you get to uh, this position? What's what, let, Tell us a little bit about your career journey. It's been a journey that started out with um, a degree from the University of Alberta in, in sciences, and then I moved to central British Columbia and have been there for uh, the past uh, 32 years. It is a degree, it's a journey that took me from the public sector where I progressed to being a senior manager, a district manager of forest districts, to the private sector where I managed a consortium of logging, trucking, hauling, and construction companies, and back into this... Um, almost world between the public and private sectors of managing a large trust of money for the, to the advantage of both the private sector and the public sector. It's a unique corporation. It's outside of government. It's got 13 uh, uh, directors on our board, but it's got a very compelling mandate around uh, building a stronger north. Okay, great. Um, I'm curious uh, about the fact of your gender and whether you think that gender, the fact that you are a woman, has affected your career progression and whether you think it's helped or hindered or how you think it's affected. My career progression has been in um, industries that tend to be male-dominated, the resource industries, Mm -hmm. and I have never found that it's been a barrier to be a woman. But you have to be very credible and very focused on leadership because you're much more noticed as a woman in those industries. And in fact, you're probably more noticed as a woman being from a smaller population base. I deal with a population base that's 70% of the province, about 375,000 people. 
many less people than um, you would find in the Lower Mainland. So your reputation it has to be credible, hard won, and it's easily lost as it is anywhere else. But you're in, under the microscope because it is a much smaller population base and a smaller ship leadership base. Mm-hmm. So when you say you've uh, been under the microscope, mm-hmm. how has that sort of when what what's how has that sort of manifested or affected you or what did you, what did you notice? Well, I think that one of the most valuable lessons that I have learned in my career um, was in basing my family in a small town, even though I would commute to other places to work. You learn the leadership lessons of small towns that will take you anywhere, where maintaining relationships is so important, not burning your bridges, understanding how to motivate and align people with goals, and how to extract accountability. And because there are less hands focused on many efforts in a very small population base, you hone those skills, I'd say, to the same degree or a much greater degree than you do in a, uh, a metropolitan environment where perhaps you're a little bit more anonymous. You don't get to reach out, take leadership opportunities, and show what you can do. Okay. I mean, one of the things I talk about in my book is respectful leadership as a relationship-based type of leadership. So it mm-hmm. sounds like that's sort of been the way you've structured your leadership style. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about the accountability piece. If you wouldn't mind speaking to that for a moment in terms of how do you extract accountability as a leader? Um, I think it, in order to extract accountability, and I'll, I'll bring forth what I think are the four things that a leader does, mm-hmm. And if you're very good at doing those four things, the last one is about alignment and extracting accountability to those. So I find the way to extract accountability starts right with the first mandate of a leader, which is recruiting the right team. Okay. If you recruit the right motivated, uh, talented people to work with you, it's much easier to extract accountability. If you manage your stakeholders well, and you have a supportive board, a supportive group of stakeholders who understands clearly what you're trying to accomplish, again, the team feels the strength behind them that they are naturally motivated and you can extract accountability. It's really important for a leader to provide the vision and strategy and ensure that the organization executes those two things well, vision and strategy. Um, you have to be crystal clear on what you're planning to do. Your team has to have a hand in developing it. And if they develop it and own it, they will be accountable to it. And they're accountable then to the organization and yourself, but it feels to them like much more than reporting to one person and one person extracting accountability. And the last thing that I think is really important to the leader's role and to the organization is that you have a unique culture you foster. And that culture, in some way, must be based on doing good. It must be based on contributing and people feeling like they are enhancing uh, others' opportunities, others' quality of life, that they are doing uh, a service role, and it, whether it's a for-profit institution or a public service institution, 
having that service ethic is what um, will drive most people to the best accountabilities and um, performance. So you would be totally supportive of the notion that it's feeling that people are contributing, making a difference that in fact motivates them to high performance. Absolutely. As opposed to what research has shown over and over, it's not the monetary compensation. It's feeling like, a, and I agree, I think everybody does want an opportunity to make a difference. So um, it's great to hear you affirm the importance of that. And also I hear in there the importance of empowering your team mm-hmm. to be able to take ownership for initiatives. Absolutely. And you providing the vision and then letting them kind of sort of run a bit with what that vision might look like and empowering them to to translate that vision. And two of the things that are most important to people are not only making a difference, but finding their own u- unique contribution to making a difference. Bringing that out in people so that every person in the team and the organization values each other's and the fact that you each have different strength and you're each together making a profound difference Mm -hmm. is what is the basis of the culture that you want to set uh, within your organization. So it's looking at diversity as opposed to the one-size-fits-all approach. Absolutely. Great. Again, something I'm very (laughs) committed to. Um, So shifting a little bit, um, last year, a couple of years ago now, actually, I presented a closing keynote for the Wealth Academy for Women here in Vancouver, and it was the first time I spoke about this topic of women in power, which I've now become more and more interested in. Um, And part of my preparation was uh, Googling women in power, and the first quote that came up was this quote. Powerful women are either sexually voracious rulers like Catherine the Great or Elizabeth I, or treacherous bitches like Cleopatra or Helen of Troy. Now, you're a woman in a position of power, and I know that I'm interested in our readers and listeners would be interested in you sharing your thoughts on the reality of being a woman in power, given the stereotypes and biases that are out there. And what tips might you have for young women contemplating their way up the corporate power hierarchy and negotiating this sort of complex relationship with power as a woman? Well, actually, my experience would um, not have anything in common with that quote. And I'm not sure who came up with that quote, but I have found that women who are in positions of power are those women who know themselves exceptionally well and who know how to bring out the best in others exceptionally well. And um, have that dose of humility, Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, just the strategy to work through and around any obstacle. They are very good at strategy. They have a very clear vision. They are very clear at communicating that vision. And... Beyond that, they just have to be themselves, people. Be able to laugh at themselves. Be able to tell the personal stories that inspire others. And if they can do that, um, there is nothing in that quote to aspire to in terms of being a, a woman in a position of power. And I find that if you are natural and authentic and you know what you do well, and you hone your leadership style and, and, and craft, which is the vision, it is the um, extracting accountability, it's hiring high-performance people, 
um, others you don't um, how do you put it you don't ever aspire to power okay power is something that's granted out of respect from others do you think there are some leaders who do aspire to power and go after leadership positions for that reason? I do tend to see that often more in the political realm oh, really? than other realms. Okay. And I, I think that sometimes there are the wrong motivations. Right. If you're aspiring for power, power is not leadership. Leadership beget, Leadership with followership is what gives you the peer-to-peer influence, the um, ability to do great things. And with that is granted positional power. And it's not because you aspire to it, it's because you show that you can demonstrate the skills to um, shepherd it wisely. Okay. So what I'm hearing then is that while there might be biases or stereotypes out there, you haven't really experienced those. And for you, it's really about being authentic Mm -hmm. to who you are, knowing who you are, and then going forward from there. That's right. Okay. Great. Well, that's very affirming to hear that, and I think inspirational for many women who I think sometimes think, oh, you know, there's so much against me and there's going to be so many people that are going to perceive me negatively because I'm a woman, but it sounds like that hasn't been your experience at all. Not at all. Which is great. So go forth young women. And (laughs) okay. So the next question has to do with being a woman, um, in a position of power in the C-suite, um, and having children. Mm -hmm. Now the research in this area has supported the fact that having children is a career liability for women that are interested in the C-suite. Um, It shows that women who don't have children seem to be able to progress up the corporate ladder at a rate relatively equal to men, but when women make a decision to have children, that often affects both their salary and their career progression. So I'd really like to hear about um, your experience relative to this, because I know that you do have a family, um, what your experience has been, and if you have any thoughts about how to address the issue so that the playing field will truly be equalized for women who do want to progress up the corporate ladder into the C-suite, but also are interested in having a family. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's as critical for men to have... Um, the perfect supporting partner Mm. to progress to the C-suite as it is for women to um, have strategies and it may not just be a a very supportive husband but it may include having uh, family support having um, uh, a nanny or in-home support But you have to be prepared and you have to sacrifice to um, financially allow for those in your life to provide you the support to um, progress and and focus on your work enough to progress in your career. Um, So it's something where you really need to think about what it is you're going to do 
to provide a great balanced home life for your children and your spouse while dealing with the pressures that um, a professional career can bring. And if you have that, then it's just a little bit of, um, I guess, self-assurance okay. that your children will likely grow up to be very independent, um, responsible adults because they've been handed responsibility earlier in life than many would. And if you have that self-assurance, that's likely what you'll see in the end. If you're always second-guessing yourself then and, and trying to um, uh, cope and overcompensate, then you may end up finding that you have um, needier self-reliant uh, young children. So raise your children in the same way that you have to go about your career with um, some humility, with a calm, quiet self-assurance and knowing yourself, knowing your own abilities and to make sure that you've got um, enough time to think about what are the things to bring around you to support yourself in your life goals. Now you have how many children? I have two daughters and a stepdaughter. Um, they are now 21, 22, and 23. And they're, um, they've uh, launched in the world. And I guess we're now finding that our definition of launched because of their lives, if we look at the similarities, is they all own their own homes. They have very stable, supportive partners. And they each have dogs, <laughs> so no <laughs> grandchildren yet. Okay, but um, they're in great careers, and they—I uh, think—they have found that you have to love what you do, which is what one of the things I tried to instill in them from, um, the, especially their teen years, younger, but especially teen years. Do what you do. Do more of what you love and less of what you don't love. Okay. Now, you didn't take any time off when you you were working full-time mm -hmm. the whole way through. And so if you don't mind sharing, so how what was the sort of support structure when you said looking at bringing resources and what sort of resources did you look at to assist you and support you in being able to keep going full-time while your yeah. kids were growing up? Well, I had a workplace that was flexible enough for a period of time, and it was a relatively short period of time, uh, less than two years that allowed me to uh, work normal kind of uh, eight to five hours, three days a week. But then two days a week, I would go in from about four in the afternoon till eleven at night. Oh, okay. I was able to see my children during the day. They didn't notice when they were very young, um, kind of sliding from uh, their mother to their father and having that handoff occur. Um, but I was able to work full time, and it. You had the weekend to recover, and so it, it worked for us. Um, we had um, family that lived nearby, uh, not retired at that point, but that was able to take some supportive roles in um, uh, kind of getting children off 
to school and, and getting them on the school bus and having a place for them to come home to. And I relied on another family, and I would say it was more than a, a daycare situation. My child had a second home for a few years. Okay. And uh, it was a lovely family, supportive environment, and they would often send me home with dinner to feed my husband and I, and my children would often be fed, and we would take them home, have some family time. They'd be off to bed, and we'd start the cycle again in the morning. Um, so it's just finding that set of supportive circumstances that work for you. During those years, I was often commuting um, an hour each way to work to an hour and a half each way, wow. and they were long-distance commutes. It mm -hmm. wouldn't have been short-distance, long-hours commutes, as in the lower mainland, but it was... 60 to 75 miles each way. Wow. Or 100 to 130 kilometers each way. Um, and I had to deal with uh, highway traffic and logging trucks, but not the sort of uh, stop-and-go traffic that you might have um, in Metro Vancouver. So you were always living in smaller communities? Living in a smaller community and then um, commuting out to another community that was anywhere from... Uh, 50 to 130 kilometers away, and but a few years working in the same community, yes. Okay. Um, and you talked about um, uh, the importance of um, the self-assurance in, in parenting, and that really resonated with me because I think for many of us as parents, we're always wondering, and especially if we do feel as women the pull of so many different things. So do you have any sort of nuggets of, of wisdom in terms of how you get to a place where you do feel self-assurance and confident in terms of your parenting. Yeah. Well, just remember that if you have to keep it together in the workplace, try and keep it together at home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, spend as much effort mm -hmm. um, keeping yourself together at home and just don't go home, go home to fall apart in front of your right. family. Right. Um, have those outlets that allow you to burn off steam, whether it's exercise, whether it's some other pursuit that is your outlet so that we're not hardest on the people we're closest mm -hmm. to. You don't go home and your children don't see you relieving all the stress of the day on them or on your spouse. Okay, so it's really a conscious discipline in terms of how we structure our lives and what we do with our emotional Baggage. Expression. Yeah. Baggage, yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Now, I'm also curious because you mentioned that you were working in one place where you had the ability to have, a, you know, two days where you work from 4 to 11. So how do, important do you think it is that corporations look at providing flexibility for working families and working parents? How big a piece of the equation is that? Well, I think the primary responsibility lies on the person who would like that flexibility to demonstrate how it can be more productive for the corporation and actually provide a better value proposition. Okay. When you're working from 4 in the afternoon till 11 at night, there are no telephone op, uh, interruptions. Um, right. You can be incredibly productive. And if you schedule your work so that your writing and your productivity hours are during those days, then I was able to spend the other three days very much focused on one-to-one -one interaction with people and the things I needed to do that um, require that focus. So you have to take into account what your position is, what your role in the organization, and if there are alternative work um, arrangements that will actually 
provide more value to the corporation because it's got to be a win-win. It's got to be a win for you and your family personally as well as the corporation. But you have to think of the employer, I think, first mm -hmm. before you think of what you would like. It's how do I make it palatable? Right. So what would be important then would be for, we'll talk about women, but I'd say any parents who are interested in having flexibility would be important rather than waiting for the corporation to take some initiative. Mm -hmm. It would be important to decide, as you just explained, what's important to me and how can I make a business case that this will be better in the long run for my employer, that the value proposition, as you said. And I would say that yeah. that's one of the ways we can step into our power and take control of our own situation and say, okay, how do I make a compelling argument that this is going to be a more successful outcome both for my employer and for myself? It's always about the value proposition. It's never about the whining. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I do say that when I... Um, uh, you know, I'm counseling or dealing with individuals who are being on the, you know, harassed or bullied, which is sort of where we're traveling next, mm -hmm. is as opposed to going in and being a sort of an emotional wreck and saying, mm -hmm. help me, it's about trying to make that sort of economic argument as to why what's happening to me in my workplace is negatively impacting my ability to do my job. Mm -hmm. And that's why we want to be thinking about this as opposed to whining, poor me, kind of, because that never really, in my experience gets people interested in wanting to be part of the solution. That's right. Okay, so as I said, segues into my next question, because as I think you're aware, a lot of my work focuses on dealing with issues of disrespect in the workplace, harassment and bullying in particular. And when we look at bullying, but harassment as well, the stats are that women, women are overwhelmingly targeted in these kinds of complaints. And unfortunately, when it comes to um, workplace bullying, we also find that when women bully, which is in 50% of the cases, they overwhelmingly target other women. Um, and in my experience and research, it relates back to that dynamic of power that we were talking about earlier and what I would say is sometimes a conflicted relationship that people have or women have with power. So again, I was curious as to your experience with these kinds of issues. Have you experienced or seen bullying and harassment? Have you seen gender being a factor? And do you have any ideas or you know, for women in terms of dealing with this reality or avoiding being involved in these kinds of issues of disrespected work? I have found that one of the most effective ways to stop a bully in their tracks is to um, encourage a great HR tool, which is a 360-degree review or analysis. Okay. Often bullies are that way because they've never truly received feedback from people who report to them, people who are their peers, and people who they report to in one fell swoop and knitted together and delivered by a uh, strong facilitator. It's a great tool. It's not an expensive tool. It's one of those things that uh, if you're bullied, you're not the only one. Find strength in a peer group. And then that may be one of those things to ask for out of the organization that's constructive. And that is um, motivated by a desire to see someone learn about themselves and perhaps get past some of those bullying tactics. I think you always have to 
You always have to start from a belief that people don't want to fail, they want to succeed. And that person may have been mentored in, in bullying tactics, they may have seen those work for someone else, they may not understand the consequences in their workplace. So to have a fairly neutral way of having informed feedback go to that person I have found it sits most people right back in their tracks and makes them reassess how they respond in the workplace uh, to other people, how they use um, the power they might have, and um, it, it can bring them out a better person. If it doesn't, then it certainly establishes a baseline of other people's perceptions that then a, um, a person who is senior to that person can act from in terms of setting new expectations, um, providing uh, whether it's uh, uh, professional development support. So I found that to be a really great tool. The other great tool that I've seen in situations of bullying is to find the person the bully respects and provide feedback through that person. And it may be somebody in the workplace, it may be their mother. <laughs> it, there is always someone who can reach a bully and reach them in a way that um, they will actually listen and they may learn from and they may, again, recalibrate their behaviors. And if those don't work, it's very important to have a workplace that is accountable to its staff and that does deal with issues of behavior like bullying and in fact does have progressive discipline and moves those people out. But I always believe that you try and educate, reset behaviors, work towards somebody's success and at the same time you're dealing with progressive discipline if and when required and moving somebody to a position that is more suited to their competencies. Okay. So from an individual, what I'm hearing is from an individual who's on the receiving end, again, and you've talked about being strategic in various different uh, ways throughout your responses. So it's being strategic in terms of suggesting the value proposition mm -hmm. of doing a 360 as opposed to the whining, as you said before, okay. um, or strategically thinking about who might be a person of influence if I'm not able to influence this individual, who might be a person that this individual would respect or would listen to that might be able to impact this person's behavior? So being strategic in that way. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the next thing would be, who in your organization can you talk to? Someone in HR, someone in a position of power, leadership, that can then start that progressive discipline path. But I think the important piece there is that the organization is committed to dealing with individuals mm -hmm once those issues are raised. So it is always at the core of your being to be self-assured and to have control over what you can have control over. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, if you're not in a workplace where you're happy, then find a workplace where you will be happy. I always believe in, in following happiness rather than expecting anything less in your life. Yeah, and I think that bears <laughs> emphasizing because too often individuals, 
especially in those situations, they start to feel victimized and they start to lose their power and they start to feel like they don't have any option and they feel trapped and then they just get into this cycle of victimization and unhappiness. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important that we catch ourselves before we start down that road and say, if this isn't working and I've tried some strategic uh, ideas and I haven't seen any improvement, then respect for self would dictate... I want to make a different decision. And there always are, I think, choices and options for people, even if you can't see them. But the choice to stay in a place, as you say, you know, happiness, I think there's more value being placed on that now. But, you know, I think that's really relevant is Mm -hmm. it is important to be happy. And if we're working in a workplace that doesn't support us and that isn't working for us, let's find another one that does, a place that's aligned with who we are. Always find that reserve of what is within your control and and deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so the last question I wanted to ask you um, was around what advice you might give if you were going to speak to a group of male CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Um, what would you like to say to them around the topics that we've been talking about, gender and progression and bullying mm-hmm. and those sorts of things? And if you were to speak to a group of ambitious Gen Y women, what would you most like to say to them around this topic? Okay. I'm going to start with the Gen Y women. Okay. I have found that um, certainly the uh, Gen Y women have grown up, and and are many of our daughters, um, with less conservative dress, less um, uh, conservative focus when you're at the workplace. Um, And so their norm around how they portray themselves and how they dress, and it might be more provocatively, Mm -hmm. than somebody who you would consider a baby boomer. But the baby boomers are probably the people in positions of power or authority in the workplace. And so going into a workplace as a young woman, I would say, if anything, um, conduct yourself and dress more conservatively than you normally would do, um, whether it's in your own time or even whether you think for that workplace. To make an impression, you are about not making an impression to your own peer group or own age group. It's about making an impression to those people that might be one or two generations removed from you. Those are the people that you want to mentor you. And you don't want that mentoring to start by somebody saying that, gee, you know, that's not appropriate in the workplace in terms of... um, uh, kind of provocatively dressing, Mm -hmm. and that uh, coming across with a a voice that's uncertain at the end of each um, phrase and and kind of drifts Mm -hmm. up uh, isn't the way you want to come across, and that spending time on social media at work is not the way you come across. Instead, you want to do none of those things. And you want to focus on what is the value proposition? What is the value I can bring at work? How can I 
show that and demonstrate that in, in what I accomplish, who I am, how I dress, impressions of me, and then how can I reach out to those individuals who can mentor me and and share a little bit of what their journey was like. And by the time that young people, Gen Y, get into those um, key positions, if they feel that they want to bring other things to the workplace that they don't think were there when other people were in power, they can. But they will have been on a self-realization journey for a number of years until that. Um, so to start out not... Um, in some ways, completely being true to your peer group, but be true to what is the culture expected of that workplace. And then from working within often that norm, you can change it. You can um, suggest things, but you have to have an audience that's in power that will listen to you and, and have their ears open to you. Um, to men uh, that would lead those corporations, I would say that there are many ways of reaching down um, two to three levels within your organization and starting to notice and starting to affirm those bright young women that may not be in your senior management group but are going to be growing the strength of your organization and men um, that are now in their uh, late 20s and 30s. And that you have to get out of your comfort zone in the C-suite and be very comfortable engaging with that age group, understanding what's important to them and listening to them about perhaps how your organization should shift to take advantage of their talent while still coaching and mentoring them on um, how to move forward in your organization. So very, as you said earlier, relationship-based from Re the top. Yeah, relationship-based, and it's about young people getting out of their comfort mm -hmm. zone, and it's about um, uh, senior people in an organization getting out of their comfort zone and learning from each other mm -hmm. and then using it to change um, and, and make a culture for the better and an organization for the better. Great. So a really consistent theme for you is stra strategy, being strategic, mm -hmm. um, self-assurance, and getting into thinking about how do I negotiate this from a place of strength and self-assurance as opposed to and looking around and not being reactive but really being proactive. Know yourself and help each one that you touch um, and, and work with know themselves better. And if you have a high-performance team of people who are very comfortable with and know their strengths and each other's strengths, you have a high-performance organization. And you can reach out and pull other people um, up the ladder into that high-performance team and mentor them. So, and just the last question has to do with mentoring. So mentoring is part of your leadership style, would you say? It has to be. I mean, mentoring is helping people to know themselves, helping them to know how the world responds to them, and um, 
helping to provide feedback and opportunities whenever you can. And not all those opportunities will be within your organization. Some may be in um, uh, not-for-profit board positions, places outside your organization, opening other doors. But it's, it's a journey for all of us, and we have an obligation to um, help people we can, uh, you know, everyone we meet that we feel has a gift to give along that journey for themselves. Thank you so much. So I'm totally inspired after having had a chance to um, to hear you and learn more about you. I heard you speak last year at um, the Professional Women's Network event, and I was very interested in having you be part of the series. So I want to thank you again for making the time. I know that I've learned a lot and found it fascinating. There's lots of things, I think, for our listeners and, and readers. So thanks again for making the time to be with us today, Janine. Just a pleasure. Thank you, Erica, for the conversation.